This is They Create Worlds, episode 95. Hello, little blue. One, two, three, four. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be. A land that's called reality. You'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. We are going to go back in time and look at Baby Blue, the little IBM. But before we do that, horrible things have happened over in CRC land. Uh Uh-oh, that doesn't sound good. Well, I am overly dramatic on occasion. On occasion? So how about you tell us what horrible things they have emailed you about over in CRC land? (laughs) So, as those of you who have been following along, especially in our very brief episode where we all sounded like we were high or something, I've written a book. Yay! Book to be published by CRC Press. They create worlds. It's, it's my brand now. What can I say? The story of the people and companies that shaped the video game industry, volume one, covering, according to the cover, the years 1971, 1982, Technically, of course, it it goes back to the prehistory as well, so there's a fair amount of 50s and 60s content. Not everything quite makes it to 1982 for reasons, mostly having to do with thematic consistency and length. But I has a book, the first of this three-volume set that I've been telling people for, like, literally 10 years. So, hooray! As we said a few episodes ago, it is in with the publisher. It's now undergoing copy editing at the time that we're recording this. Copy editing should still be going on at the time this is actually uh, listened to by all you folks as well. It's available for pre-order. We've put the link in the show notes. We've tweeted the link to the CRC Press website where it's available for pre-order. It's also available at major online retailers like Amazon. Right now, CRC itself has got the best price because none of the uh, major retailers have done their discounty thingamabopper yet. Amazon will probably discount it at some point, as they always do. Of course, if you buy a non-discounted copy, I get more money, so I have a vested interest there, but I don't care. Buy it from whatever place makes the most sense for you at whatever price makes the most sense for you. They are expensive books. I guarantee you that if video game history is something you like, if it isn't, why are you listening to me right now? This book is is going to be comprehensive in a way previous volumes have not been comprehensive. It's going to have material in it that has never appeared in print before. Some of it, if you've been listening to the podcast, you'll already be privy to, because of course, anything I learn in my research that's germane to a topic we discuss on the podcast, I integrate it here for you good folks. But there is new information in there, there is new insight in there, and it is comprehensive. So it is an expensive book, but It is also a quality book. Buy it if that sounds good to you. If it doesn't sound good to you, then just keep listening to the podcast. We'll eventually get to all of it. Yes. So, book has a penciled-in date of December. Uh, Well, I think it has a specific penciled-in date of December 2nd. I couldn't say definitively that it will actually be out on December 2nd, but I can say that the production people have a production schedule in place that should have the book out in December. So. Barring any catastrophes during layout, copy editing, proofing, etc., etc., 
we should be able to expect that in time to make a lovely Christmas gift for that video game history aficionado in your life. Or worst case, bring in the new year. It is a volume one. I am signed for three books. Hopefully the publisher will publish all three books. There will be two similarly big, similarly comprehensive, and similarly priced volumes coming in the future after that. Volume 2 covering 1982 to 1994-ish. Volume 3 covering 1994-ish to 2005, which is where I'm stopping the whole thing for now. (laughs) Not bringing it all the way to the present. And those books will hopefully, again, things get murkier and murkier the further out you try to predict things. But the hope is that those books are going to come two years and then two years again after that book. So hopefully we're looking at December 2021, December 2023 for those other volumes. But, I mean, don't quote me on that as a definitive kind of thing. And everyone can now start their pools on which will come out first. They Create Worlds, Volume 3, or George R.R. Martin's The Winds of Winter. My bets on Alex. <laughs> Let's get get to what people have actually come here for. The story of Little Blue. Little Blue IBM. International Business Machines. That's right. So today's episode won't really be a video game or computer game or even electronic game generally sort of episode. Heresy. Uh, I know. But part of what we do is try to put developments in video game history into a little bit of context. Only a little bit, but some. And the impact of IBM on computer game history is vast. We are still living in a PC-compatible world. As much as people are trying to push everything into a post-PC world with tablets and smartphones and screens coming out on top of screens on top of screens... If you're playing computer games, what we generally call computer games, you are still playing them, most likely, on an IBM PC compatible. I know we've got some Mac people out there. You're great people, too. The majority of people are, are on a PC compatible. So the way that the PC developed as a platform is important to the way that computer games developed, because the, the nature of the platform, of course, shapes the nature of the games. But we're not going to talk about the PC today. That's part two. Because you can't really understand where the PC came from and how the PC came to be without understanding IBM as a company and where IBM was in 1980, 1981, when it was doing this PC project, Project Chess, as they called it in prototype phase. So we are going to take this episode to really look at IBM from its beginnings up until it achieved complete and utter dominance of the traditional mainframe, big box computer industry. All right. Who do we get to blame for founding this company? Lots of people, actually. So IBM did not really start as one company. There was not a guy that came along and said, I am going to found a company. And that company is called International Business Machines. In fact, IBM really started as a scam. Oh, great. We get to start off with criminal activity. Well, it wasn't criminal. Scams can be legal. (laughs) But it was very much a scam, sham kind of corporation that was never, ever meant 
to be the company that it became. So we need to go back in time for this to the late 19th century. The late 19th century was a great period of change in the way offices worked and in the way data was processed. There was just as big a revolution going on in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s as the computer revolution would be 70, 80 years later. The big kind of push that was happening in this period is that you had new devices that allowed you to keep track of money better, keep track of certain products better, keep track of data better, and do things in the office more efficiently. Some of this was electromechanical stuff. Some of this was just simply better pen and paper organizational systems. You had the first hanging file systems coming into existence in the 1890s. File cabinets where you have individual folders and those folders have tabs on them and those tabs are color-coded to indicate various different kinds of things and then you can write little notes in your color-coded tab to get any more information on. Something that seems so basic and so intuitive is really an invention of the 1890s. You had the cash register being invented in the 1880s. You had the typewriter being invented in the 1870s and then starting to enter use in the 1880s and 1890s more frequently. You had the first adding machines. Well, the first practical adding machines, because there had been some earlier inventions here and there. But you had the first practical electromechanical adding machines coming in, which were not quite the calculators of today because they had many more buttons and they were set up to add rows and columns of figures in a similar way to how bank clerks had their spreadsheets set into rows and columns. So you have all of these various things coming in. You have the first time clocks coming in, the ability to keep track of an employee's time by having them literally punch a clock. You had the first electromechanical scales coming in that gave more accurate weights than your old weighing scales where you put some weights on one end and put your product on the other end and see how it balances. So this was a really great time of change in office efficiency and in the tracking of stuff. So there were a lot of entrepreneurial companies being formed by inventors and by savvy businessmen to bring this new revolution to the people. The late 19th century was also a time of monopolies. This is the time of U.S. Steel, Standard Oil, all of these big conglomerates that were taking control horizontally and vertically of entire areas of the economy and entire product categories and dominating their businesses. The company that became IBM exists at the nexus of this monopolizing tendency and this invention of new stuff tendency. The founder of IBM was a businessman by the name of Charles Flint. Charles Flint was a trader, essentially. He worked for a company called W.R. Grace that was a shipping and trading firm. He became very well known in South America, where he served as an agent dealing in everything from raw materials to guns. So he's the guy out there making contacts, getting 
good prices, organizing shipping, getting stuff moving between places. He makes a lot of money doing all of that. He's also somebody that is actually very interested in technology. So even though the company really is a bit of a sham in a way, his love of technology side is really quite genuine. He was very interested in things like the automobile, the light bulb, the airplane, some of these new technologies coming in at the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century. Once he was well-established in international trade and had a lot of contacts in trade, both in the United States and Latin America especially, but also in other parts of the world, he started creating trusts. He started creating these monopoly companies in the same manner that some of these other people were putting together companies. But he was coming at it from a different direction from an Andrew Carnegie or a John D. Rockefeller. John D. Rockefeller, for instance, you know, he ended up dominating the oil business. And so he created a monopoly in order to keep his total domination of that business and reap huge profits by being the man in oil in the United States and, and even around the world. Flint was not that type of guy. He was more of a speculator and a businessman. So one of the main reasons that he created trusts is because he could take existing companies, put them together, say, look at all these great companies that have done so well individually. Now they're all under one umbrella, and this is the new company that is the holding company, the Umbrella Corporation. There's a video game reference for you. For all of these subsidiary companies, and you know all these companies have done great. Now that they're all together, they're doing even greater. You want to invest in my company. Take my money. Take it. No, give me money. Buy my stock. The more people trade the stock, the more people think the stock has value, the more the stock goes up. Flint owns a lot of stock in these companies because he's the one organizing them. So as people get excited about the companies and start buying the stock, his wealth also increases. So he never really created a monopoly that became a dominant firm in nearly the same way as a U.S. Steel or a Standard Oil, because he really wasn't about that. He was really about pumping up stock price, giving out lavish dividends to investors to encourage more investment, because people knew that's where the money was, and then just riding that wave as long as he could until the company was no longer worth his time anymore, and then going on and creating another one of these new trusts in order to kind of start the whole excitement over again. So that's kind of what I mean when I say that IBM started out as kind of a scam. Now, some of his trusts made some sense. He created a company, for instance, called U.S. Rubber that pulled together several rubber concerns. So the companies he were, was pulling together were all in the same industry. Some of his others didn't make as much sense, and the previous company to CTR was one of those. So over time, three of the companies that Flint was able to kind of pull together were three firms called the International Time Recording Company, which was based in Indicott, New York, and the Computing Scale Company in Dayton, Ohio, which was in scales, obviously. You know, these are scales 
like the scales that you see in the supermarket today, though obviously not the same technology that we use today. They're computerized today. But scales that would not only tell you the weight of something, but also compute the cost. You know, you could tell it what the cost per ounce or the cost per pound of what you're weighing was, and then it would not only weigh your item, but it would compute the cost of the item too. So International Time Recording Company did pretty well for itself because time clocks were big because this was the first time where factory owners could really completely reliably track how much their employees were actually working. And so this was a big booming business. The computing scale company never did as well. And really the reason for that is not because the products were not successful products. People did want scales. But you see, once you sold someone a time clock, then you can sell them time cards. This is the razor and razor blade model again, isn't it? Exactly. So you can build your time clock to only accept specifically your type of time cards, get some kind of patent on the technology in there, so that if anyone else creates a similar card, it violates your patents and you can sue them into oblivion. And then you've locked in customers to your product long term. Scales are great, but once you sell someone a scale, they have a scale, and they won't need another scale for 10 years, or, you know, however long the thing holds out. So he was doing okay with ITR, he was doing less okay with Computing Scale Company. So he thought, okay, these are both companies that are in the recording of data and measuring of data business. It's a bit of a stretch. It's really a bit of a stretch, but that's the logic. So we could put them together under this idea of measuring and keeping track of stuff, question mark, question mark. But he knew that he needed something else to go along with that. He knew that those two alone would not be enough. He entered negotiations with a third company to kind of bring in to this new trust that he was putting together. That new company that he was looking into, which in some ways is the closest progenitor to what became IBM because its product line was much closer to what IBM would later do. And that corporation was the Tabulating Machine Company, which was established in 1896 by a gentleman named Herman Hollerith. Hollerith's claim to fame is that he figured out a way to automate the counting of people in the United States Census. As our American friends will know, every 10 years, the entire population of the United States must be counted. It's in our Constitution. We have to do it. That counting is used then to apportion representatives throughout the country for the next 10 years. So it's a very important process in our uh, democracy. So it's a big deal. Back in the day, before we had fancy electromechanical and electronic devices, taking a census meant that you had to send people out to every nook and cranny of the United States and count them all by hand. You split up the entire country into territories. You hire a certain number of people in a territory and give them a certain number of places they have to go. They knock on doors. They ask questions. They record the results by hand. It all gets sent into some central place where everything is counted up by hand, and then you have a census. Well, the United States population was growing very rapidly during the Industrial Revolution. 
So this was never an easy process. I mean, even in the early days of the country, it wasn't necessarily an easy process. You've got a big country, you have lots of people, you have a rapidly growing population, and you're tallying it all by hand. The 1880 census took seven years. Seven years. We count our population every 10 years. We needed seven years to finish that count. It was three years from the next census when we finished the last one. Not a good turnaround time, not to mention not long you get to use the data. That's right. So clearly something needed to be done to automate the census. And so the Census Bureau put out a call for ideas. Herman Haldorith already knew about the census. He was actually educated as a mining engineer. Nothing to do with data processing or data management or anything like that. But he did have a professor at Columbia when he was getting his Ph.D., who was an advisor to the Census Bureau. So he was aware of the Census Bureau, he had contacts in the Census Bureau, and he knew about the problems going on at the Census Bureau. So when the call went out for stuff, a better way of doing the census, Polarith decided to submit a solution. And he was the only one to submit an electromechanical solution instead of a manual solution. This is the period, like I said, when the first filing systems are starting to come into being. So there were a couple of submissions that were in the finalists that had to do with using different colored inks or different colored cards or different tabs on different cards to at least let a person who's doing the counting not have to read words and be able to just very quickly sort things just based on color. Because it's not the counting of the people. It's not sending people out into the countryside and getting the initial information that takes all this time. Because you can put lots and lots of people on that, and so you can shorten that process through manpower. What takes the time is counting it all, once you have all of that information. So you had a couple of manual solutions, but Holerith was inspired by some of the new mechanical technology out there, and by ticket takers on trains. Because even into the 20th century, and maybe in some places uh, in the 21st century, ticket takers have a device. Now it's all digital, so they can just scan a barcode or something. But back in the day, they had this little device, this ticket puncher, and they would punch your ticket different ways depending on what your fare was and where you were going, so they could tell at a glance, once they had punched your ticket, whether you should still be on the train or not, whether you were still really going further on the train or if you had only bought a fare this far and should really be getting off the train now. Pretty elegant system. Seen a ticket punch like that before? I don't think I have actually ever seen a ticket punch like that before. Of course, in the United States, it's not like we really take trains all that often. No, we, we really don't. Last time I think I was on a train was with you going to Italy. Yep, yep, yep. Use them a lot more in Europe, where I lived for a few years. So he saw that, and it's like, okay, they punch different parts of the ticket to keep track of different pieces of information. So what if you had a card, and different spots on the card represented different pieces of information, and then you punched the card in one of those spots in order to tally a particular piece of information? And then, what if you built a machine that could quickly, quote-unquote, read and figure out which one of those holes has been punched 
and what hole in that spot is signifying, and then transmits that information to some counter that's keeping track of every single one of those things. You know, in the very beginning, it's almost like a turnstile, so to speak. You know, if you turn a turnstile and it tallies something. So it's kind of the similar idea. So you've got in its very basic form, in the very first version that wasn't even fully automated yet, you basically had a machine that had a series of retractable pins. And you had pins on on both sides of this machine. So you would put a card in this machine and then you would close the machine down on top of it. And both the top and the bottom of the machine had pins on them. Any pins that touched each other would complete a circuit. Once a circuit was completed, it would send an electrical impulse that would update a tally for that particular circuit. So if there is a hole in the card, that allows the two pins to touch and the circuit to complete. If there's no hole in the spot in a card, then the pins don't touch, the circuit stays incomplete, nothing gets tallied. So all you have to do is punch the cards which is a pretty quick process compared to writing things out for whatever, punch the cards to represent the data. You know, are you single or married? You know, punch here for single, punch here for married. How many people in your household? Punch here for one, punch here for two, punch here for three, etc. Punch the appropriate hole in your punched card. Put it in this machine. Have the card read it by completing circuits wherever there are holes and adding a tally. And suddenly, you can just get this thing super-duper automated. So you have a machine to punch the card, you have the machine to read the card, and then you have the tally. You kind of have this system all together, and you can move through information much faster. Kind of makes sense? It does. It really does. Very much how we've described punch cards in the past. I remember pulling up in show notes showing people who were in their 80s and 90s showing these old machines where they would type out their punch card thing, and then it goes Mm -hmm. off to the computer in order to be processed. Absolutely. And now, Holerith did not invent the punched card. The punched card actually goes back to the late 18th and early 19th century because they were used on looms to automate looms. It was kind of one of the very first, quote-unquote, programmable devices we ever had were automated looms in the textile industry. And based on where you punch the holes in the, in the cards, that would tell the loom how to weave the warp and the woof of whatever it was creating and create the pattern that you wanted. So punched cards already existed, but his inspiration was to take the punched card out of programming a loom and taking it to counting and tabulating things and then creating an electromechanical device that could quickly read that information and and control a tally. So none of the individual pieces of technology were necessarily new technology, but nobody had brought them all together like this, before Herman Hollerith. Since he had the only automated, or semi-automated, I should say, system for doing these things, he won the contract for that 1890 census. It still took a long time, but it only took two and a half years. And that's with a population that had grown even bigger since 1880, so it was counting many more people. So that's a pretty big savings right there, going from seven years to two and a half Going from seven years down to two years, that's much better. You're still getting eight years of useful time out of that census. Yeah. And I can only imagine the entire process can be improved as they it's further refined. Exactly. 
So, of course, over time, the machines got more sophisticated. The first version of it, you really had to put the cards in one at a time. Obviously, it keeps getting more advanced. It gets to the point where feeding the cards into the machine gets automated, so you don't have to do it one at a time. That speeds things up. Eventually, you get machines that can sort the cards as well. So if you have a card where you've indicated a lot of different pieces of information, you've got gender on it, you've got number of people in the house on it, you have all these different pieces of information on it, then you can tell it, okay, I want to sort by number of people in the household. And so you put it in the machine and it reads just those punches in the card and then it puts them in in proper order. So these machines get more and more complex as time goes on. But this is the beginning of what is called the tabulating industry because this machinery is used to tabulate figures, to count figures, and then allow you to arrange that data in various ways. So it starts with the census, then Holarith founds the Tabulating Machine Corporation in 1896 to start bringing this technology to big businesses that also have a lot of data to keep track of, particularly businesses like insurance and the railroads that have a lot of complex stuff that they're looking after. He loses the bid for the next census. Because once he comes up with the system, other competitors come along, and another guy named James Powers creates a competing company. I only bring him up because we'll hear about Powers again in the story of IBM. And he creates a machine, and he has kind of the inside track with the new census people because it's a new administration coming in. So he doesn't get the 1900 census. Somebody else does. So he starts getting more and more focused on the business industry. I'm sorry, it's the 1910 census that he lost, but same difference. And he really doesn't want to sell out his business when Charles Flint comes calling. Because Charles Flint wants another company to combine with these other two that he has, the time recording company and the computing scale company, to really make a great monopoly that he knows is just going to have a big, 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 big stock offering that he can make lots of money on. Holerith probably wouldn't be so inclined to sell, but he was having health problems. He was a kind of... uh, Difficult man, quick to anger, quick to take offense. So his customer relations skills weren't the greatest, so it was sometimes a challenge for him to keep customers that became upset with his ways. Between that and his health failings and all of that, he decided, okay, fine, I'll sell. So in 1911, Flint combines these three companies, International Time Recording, Computing Scale, and Tabulating Machine Company into a new trust with the absolutely inspiring name, Computing Tabulating Recording. CTR. That's right. And that is actually the abbreviation that they used with hyphens between them to make it look even more ugly. C hyphen T hyphen R. Exclamation point. The Computing Tabulating Recording Corporation. It's a terrible name. It's a terrible idea for a company. You have three firms whose businesses have nothing to do with each other. You know, he tries to sell it as these are the advanced machines that are being used to measure and record things in various industries. But it doesn't work. Time clocks, weighing scales, tabulating machines are completely different products. You're selling them to completely different people, completely different businesses, You can't have the same salesman go to the same companies and sell all three at the same time. The whole point of monopolies and trusts is that you create economies of scale 
so that because you have all of these businesses that are involved all in the same business, you save money based on the synergy between these companies, and then it makes it easier to more efficiently produce a product, which also lowers your prices, that you can then more efficiently sell to clients, which makes it easier for you to gain business. That's the whole point of a trust. What we have here is three companies in completely different fields. They are headquartered in completely different cities. The heads of the individual companies, Flint's the head of the whole thing, and also a guy named George Fairchild, who is an ITR executive, is also a prominent executive in the whole thing. But each of the companies still have their own person on top. These executives don't really like each other. Holerith doesn't want anyone interfering with his business at all. The guys in the other companies don't really want anything to do with each other either. So these companies are at best disinterested in what each other are doing, and at worst are sometimes actively plotting against each other. It's a stupid company. It doesn't work. Part of the reason it doesn't work is by design, because Flint and Fairchild didn't really care if the company worked as long as people bought the stock. Fairchild was in it entirely for the dividends. He just didn't care. Flint just wanted to have a good stock offering, make some money on stock, and when this thing runs its course, fine, I'll move on to the next thing. So that's kind of why it was such a disaster of a company. It probably would have stayed a disaster of a company, except that they needed it to do just well enough that it would keep paying dividends. So Fairchild and Flint decided, okay, we've got to bring in some kind of semi-professional manager to be the president of this thing and at least make it run well enough that we can convince people it's a good investment and we can keep getting dividends. And so they brought in a guy named Tom Watson Sr. Very, very important in the annuals of business history and very important in IBM history. There's a reason that they call their supercomputer Watson. A little bit of extra trivia there. (laughs) That's right. Tom Watson Sr. was an excellent salesman that had come up in a little company called National Cash Register, or NCR. National Cash Registers, the name sounds like, sells cash registers. John Patterson, the founder and CEO of National Cash Register, did not invent the cash register. In fact, he was not even the guy that first bought the cash register company from the guy who invented the cash register. He was the second guy to come along and try to make money on cash registers. Nobody was really making money on cash registers, even though the product itself was a great idea. So Patterson gets the patents and gets the rights to this first cash register, and then he creates a powerhouse, and he does it through sales, sales, sales. John Patterson is the first modern salesman. There may have been some other minor people implementing some of the same ideas at the same time he was, but for all intents and purposes, John Patterson established modern sales. He was the first, or at least the very first prominent person, to divide the entire country into sales territories, non-competing areas where salesmen were specifically responsible for all of the business in their territory and would get commissions for every sale they made in their territory. He was one of the first one to standardize sales pitches. He was one of the very first people to create canned sales pitches where you would train all of your salesmen to present all of your products in the exact same way, give them scripts 
so that they knew exactly what to say and exactly how to push the product. He was one of the first to have an annual sales convention as an incentive where all of the employees, all of the salesmen that earned a certain amount of commission would be considered members of the Platinum Club or whatever he called it and then would be invited to a special sales convention to celebrate how awesome they were and get tips on how to become even better salesmen in the future. All of this stuff I'm talking about, it's like, well, Alex, that's just sales, right? Well, isn't it? It is, but it didn't really exist before the 1880s. Well, how the heck did they sell things back then? Not very well, I think. (laughs) Hey, merchant, give me many one apple, and I shall give you this coin. Okay. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, no, it's it's really the beginning of the modern conception of sales and the way sales is still basically done to the present day. So NCR was built into a powerhouse, and Tom Watson became a salesman at NCR. He was a failure. Tom Watson Sr. was a failure at everything he had ever tried. He was born on a farm. He tried to be a bookkeeper. It didn't work. He tried being a salesman. He was not good at it. He tried running a butcher shop in Buffalo. The butcher shop failed. But his butcher shop had been a customer of NCR for a cash register. NCR would sell cash registers on installments because cash registers were big and fancy new pieces of equipment. So you didn't usually just buy one outright. You would lease it or you would buy it on an installment plan. So when his butcher shop failed... He uh, had to take the cash register back to the local NCR sales office because he couldn't make payments anymore. Basically, he just started pestering the sales manager there about how the business worked and how sales worked and all of this and all of that until the sales manager just finally said, okay, fine, here, go sell cash registers for us, whatever. And he finally found something he was good at. Turned out he was really good at selling John Patterson's cash registers. Not other things, just cash registers. <laughs> no, no, it, it turns out that he was a national, natural salesman. I mean, he had tried sales before and it hadn't worked out for him, but he'd never been exposed to a system like John Patterson's system, you know, where they were actually trained and given sales pitches and given all sorts of support and given statistics and demographics on their territory. Once he had the proper tools and the proper training, it turned out he was actually really good at being a salesman. So he rose through the ranks very quickly, Uh, and he ended up in Dayton, which was the home of NCR, very quickly at the home office. And then he was given a very shady job by Mr. Patterson. Mr. Patterson was one of these monopolists, these people that like being in charge of everything and want to crush all of their competition so that everyone has to bow down before them and take their product. What this meant is that he got very upset with the used cash register market. You see, Patterson really pushed people to update their cash registers all the time. This was kind of very similar to the way that Apple wants people to update their iPhones all the time. I mean, I don't think his cycle was 18 months, but he was still pushing for people to update his cash registers with the latest features and the latest bells and whistles all the time. And you aren't going to be able to survive without this latest and greatest big cash register. So buy it. And, you know, the bigger companies, the more well-off companies, the companies that could afford to do it, they did that. They would buy a new cash register every three years or every five years or however often they would do it. Because this is before the time that most people were really engaged in planned obsolescence of products. 
that old cash register was still going to be good to go for another 5, 10, 15 years just in terms of I press this button and it does what it's supposed to. So a smaller company, a smaller shop that just wants to be able to total some receipts at the end of the day and make sure their employees aren't stealing from the till, they're happy to use that 10-year-old cash register as long as the buttons still work. So then you had a used market developing where you would have the big companies replacing their cash registers every couple of years or every three years or whatever it is, and then selling their old cash register to a used cash register company, and then that used cash register company would then sell it to the lower level company, whatever. Patterson did not like that because those were sales that he was not getting for his cash registers. So he had Tom Watson set up a used cash register company that was secretly an NCR subsidiary. Nobody knew it was. And what he would do is buy cash registers from companies upgrading for more money than his competitors and then sell them secondhand for less money than his competitors. Now, that's a business plan that would never work if you're an independent company, but it's a subsidiary of NCR. So NCR funded it and made up for his losses. So he could afford to run the business at a loss because the parent company was covering. His competition didn't have a big parent company. See, this is what monopolies do. Without getting political too much, this is why monopolies can be very bad. So NCR drove all of the used cash register competition out of business. They couldn't turn a profit. And as soon as all the competition was gone, they, of course, immediately then raised their prices and all of this stuff. Well, the government kind of got wind of that. There were, by this time, antitrust laws. This was progressive era when government cared about maybe trying to stop some of that stuff. So all of the principal executives of NCR were tried with antitrust violations. It's kind of weird. Watson actually got off. So in 1912, these charges were brought, and pretty much everyone was found guilty of violating the Sherman Antitrust Act in 1913, and they were probably all going to have to serve jail time. One way that Patterson was a little similar to Steve Jobs is when his bit flipped, it flipped. You know, they used to say about Steve Jobs that he saw everyone as a one and a zero. I forget whether the ones are the ones he liked and the zeros are the ones he didn't like, but the point is... He either really liked you or really didn't, and if that bit flipped, if you flipped from a one to a zero in his mind, then you were dead to him for the rest of your life. That was a Steve Jobs quirk that people around him called flipping his bit. Patterson was kind of the same way. He was very magnanimous to employees and was very caring towards his employees. Even his assembly line workers, he was being better to them than a lot of people were being to their employees. But if he soured on you, he really soured on you. Patterson was convicted of antitrust, too, but basically all of his subordinates that were convicted of antitrust with him, he just kind of soured on them. He was just kind of done with them. I don't know if he was mad that they let them all get caught or what. So pretty much all of those people were out of the company within a year. And so Watson was fired. He left the company, even though he was head of sales and very good at it. He was disgraced because he was facing jail time. He'd been convicted of antitrust. It was very hard for him to find another job. Well, The CTR people weren't concerned about that because they knew Watson was very talented. They knew Watson would keep the company on an even keel. And who cared about the rest of it? Because, you know, we're just trying to make as much money as we can and get out of it. Let's let Watson run it and let him keep it going a little bit and we'll all make a little more of that money. A little more of that trust money. Turns out that the convictions were thrown out on appeal. 
and the government didn't want to go through the whole effort of charging everybody again and trying the case a second time because that's expensive. So they managed to convince everyone to settle, except for Watson. Watson refused to settle on principle. He really was guilty of antitrust violations. So when I say that he was doing it on principle, he was doing it on his principle, but he really wasn't principled in this instance. Though in all fairness, he never did anything like this again. I mean, IBM dominated its field, but he never did something shady like this while he was running IBM. He dominated the field in other ways. So Watson refused to settle. The government decided it was not worth the expense of trying just Watson, nobody else. So everyone else that settled, they were guilty and got a lenient sentence. But Watson was innocent Mm. because he didn't settle and then they didn't bother to try him. So he came out of it. I mean, his reputation suffered some, but he came out of it legally intact. And so CTR made him general manager first because they didn't want to make him president while he had the suit hanging over his head. And then once he was cleared of all charges, he was made president of the company. So Thomas Watson Sr. defined the IBM culture that would persist for decades and decades after he joined the company in 1914. And he did it mostly through the same techniques that John Patterson had created at NCR. He did the sales territories. He did the commissions. He did the sales conventions. He did all of these same innovations that NCR had done. And he just turned the company into a better integrated sales juggernaut that was able to basically outsell anyone in the field. And then he heavily invested in R&D, which is another thing that John Patterson had heavily believed in. He was always having his engineers come up with new and better things so he could sell new and shinier things to his customers. So he put an R&D operation together and he put a sales force together and turned IBM into really the dominant company in information. He did all this right as World War I was starting, and everyone needed a lot of data for their war manufacturing and their militaries. So he had a lot of customers for this kind of stuff. CTR had actually been losing ground in tabulating equipment. The Powers, who was then later bought out by Remington Rand, because he had been investing more in R&D, and Holerith had been blocking that at CTR. Holerith didn't want anyone making changes to his machines. So they had been losing ground. But once Watson took over, he was able to turn the company around. It required plowing a lot of money back into the company. And in his defense, I was talking about how Flint saw it as a stock scam and he's just trying to make money. In his defense, Flint backed Watson when he reinvested all of the company's profits, not all of the company's profits, but a good portion of the company's profits back into R&D and developing new things. Fairchild didn't want to do it. Fairchild's chairman of the company at this point, and he didn't want to do any of that. He just wanted his dividends. He just wanted his money. But Flint still had enough influence with the rest of the board that he was able to kind of keep Fairchild off of Watson's back and let him do his thing. So this is kind of how things go in the late teens, early 20s. Then in 1924, George Fairchild dies, and this allows Watson to basically take complete control of the entire company. Flint's already out of the picture by this point as well. So when Fairchild goes away in 1924, Watson takes over completely as chairman, CEO, president, everything of CTR, and at that point, renames the company International Business Machines. Was there a reason behind the name apart from CTR just being atrocious? No, it really is that. 
Plus, he was more and more emphasizing the tabulating thing. The time recording stuff was going pretty well at this point, too, so they were still making money on that. The scale corporation side of it, he finally sold. He was able to sell that off. So the name never was a good name to begin with, and it really didn't fit the image that he wanted for the company. He wanted a name that really unified and said, you know, this is the product field that we actually dominate. And he had been expanding aggressively internationally in the early 20s. And he started actually using that International Business Machine's name in some of the subsidiaries that were founded in other countries in this time period. And so then in 1924, with the last of the old guard gone, he was just finally able to rename the entire company International Business Machines, make sure that all of the subsidiaries were also called IBM France, IBM England, IBM Canada, IBM this, IBM that, and just kind of unify the entire company under this International Business Machines name. So we'll kind of skip over the the next period a little bit and just kind of briefly state there are two things that happened in the late 20s and early 30s that really brought IBM completely and utterly to dominance. One of them is that their technology kept improving and they did figure out a way to create punched cards that would only work in IBM machines and then patent them so that nobody else could create copycat cards. So they figured out how to create this really lucrative punched card business. And what they would do is you did not buy a machine from IBM. You did not buy a tabulating machine from IBM. You leased it. And then you bought the cards. So they were making money every month on the machines. They were making way more money, money hand over fist, on the cards. Because the whole system was proprietary, Once they had a customer for two or three or four years, that customer was never going to switch to somebody else. Because as soon as they switched companies, IBM would take all their leased machines back and all of their records that they had accumulated on IBM machines and IBM cards, they would now no longer be able to read. That's kind of frightening to think about. It really is. And they had antitrust problems again over this. They had some big antitrust problems over the fact that they dominated in this way. So he did a different thing. You know, it wasn't something as blatantly illegal. I mean, what they did at NCR was illegal. Creating that subsidiary and undercutting competition because the parent company was bankrolling and everything, that was really bad. This wasn't that level of badness, but basically by dominating the patents in the field, by doing cross licenses with other companies to acquire patents, by purchasing patents outright, by pooling patents with other companies, they were able to create a patent pool where they had the rights to all the technology. And then they were able to enforce those patents to keep competitors out of the business. And then they were able to use their patented equipment and their patented cards to keep their customers firmly locked in with them for all time. And then they had a great sales force and they constantly innovated in their R&D. So those were the secrets to success. They did great in the 1920s, and then this little thing called the Great Depression happened. May have heard of that one. Nah. Now, IBM was in a better position than a lot of big companies because people kind of always need to count things. So it's not like their business dried up overnight. They still had cash. They had a lot of cash because they'd made a lot of money during the Roaring Twenties. They didn't just lose all of their customers because there were still people out there that needed to count things. They still needed these machines. 
they did have to lay some people off. They did have some tough times, but it wasn't the end of the world quite yet. And Watson, like a lot of other business executives, thought that this recession couldn't possibly last long. Of course, they were all wrong about that. So in the early years of the Depression, he basically didn't lay anybody off. He did his darndest to keep paying everybody. And he actually increased production on his tabulating machines. Figure that if people are buying fewer now, once this thing is over in two years, which it wasn't, then they'd need machines. They'd come back to him. Well, obviously, it didn't end up being that way. And so by, you know, 1933, 1934, IBM was kind of in a little bit of bad shape. But then the federal government passed this little thing called the Social Security Act. The Social Security Act created what is now our modern Social Security system. Every employer and every employee would pay as a tax a certain amount of money to the government, which would all be pooled and then would be doled out for retirement, disability, and certain other conditions based on whatever parameters they decide to set up. I mean, those fluctuate over the years. This means that every employer in the country needs to keep detailed and complicated payroll records. This means that the federal government has to keep records on every person in the country, issuing Social Security numbers, keeping track of what they're making, where they are, etc. That sounds like a lot of data processing to me. What about you, Jeff? I think that sounds like pandemic levels of data processing. And here we are with all of these excess machines that need loving homes. That's right. So not only did IBM have a good sales force that was already dialed in pretty well with these companies and with the government, they were literally the only company of the you know half dozen-ish tabulating machine companies that existed that could fulfill the government's needs immediately. And the government needed machines immediately because there was a mandate in the bill that this whole system would start by such and such a date. So IBM made a killing and never looked back. The later years of the Depression, while so many companies were doing terribly, IBM was making money hand over fist. They were by far now dominant in tabulating machines. They would never lose that grip on tabulating machines right up until the whole concept became obsolete. And they were just huge, dominant, big, powerful. This is really when we get, in some ways, the IBM that we think of as IBM. This is when little blue becomes big blue. In a way, it is. Yeah, I mean, they were already successful, but this kind of pushed them into the stratosphere. And of course, World War II, that's a lot of data processing burden. The data processing burden just gets bigger and bigger and bigger as the rest of the 20th century unfolds. World War II, you have logistics needs. I need to keep track of how many bullets am I manufacturing? Where are those bullets yep. going? How many bullets are being shot by personnel in the field in this theater of war? And that's just bullets. Now I have to calculate feeding yep. those people, clothing <laughs> those people, watering those people, bringing the injured and dead back, bringing fresh faces to the war front, materiel, relief efforts, rebuilding efforts, mines. Yeah, yeah. All another hole punched in another card. Or maybe I can have this like really small one that they can use in the field to calculate artillery firing trajectories. So here's a little fun fact on the side. Yeah. Uh, you may know that way back in the day, I don't know that whether it's as important today or not, 
but it was a big deal when personal computers had what's called an 80-column display, which means you could have 80 columns of text. That was the standard in word processing, being able to display 80 columns across. You're aware of that as a concept? Yeah, I am aware of that. I still run into certain situations where if certain things, especially on text-based whatever, exceeds that 80-column limit, things (laughs) go off the rails. You'd think you wouldn't experience that in 2019. You really do. So having said that, how many columns do you think an IBM punched card had that was for use with an IBM tabulating machine? I'll take uh, 80 columns for 50, Alex. (laughs) Exactly. So the the entire idea of 80 columns of text and 80 column displays in computing comes directly from IBM tabulating equipment. So now that we've kind of established how IBM became big in tabulating equipment, now we have to do the same thing here for the rest of the episode and explain how they got from there into computing. There's a lot of misunderstanding in some circles about IBM and computers. There's this sense in some circles that IBM came to computing late. They weren't doing much with computing in the early 1940s. They were not the first big market share leading computer company. That was Univac, which was done by Remington Rand that had also bought Powers, so it also been IBM's main competitor in tabulating equipment. And there's this thought that Tom Watson Sr. didn't know computers, didn't understand computers. He's a pretty old man by this point in the late 1940s, and he's still running the company. And that it was really only when Tom Watson Sr. finally relinquished control in 1956, and his son, Tom Watson Jr., became CEO of the company, that they really embraced their destiny and they were fortunate that certain things broke their way and so they were able to take over the market, but it could have gone very differently because they were so far behind. While there's a grain of truth in that statement, that really is not correct. There's a few things that you have to understand about computers, especially in this early era, and about IBM and the customers it served. Computers in the late 1940s, as they were first starting to be developed in the very early 1950s, were big, bulky, expensive machines. They were also, compared to today, very slow machines. Compared to something electromechanical, they were pretty fast. But it's not like they were blazing in their speed. So if you're a company that is tabulating stuff, counting stuff, which, of course, is something a computer can do. Are you going to buy a million-dollar machine that is huge, consumes all the power, costs you a huge amount of upfront money, and barely does things faster than the electromechanical tabulating machines, if it even does them faster at all, because there could be other inefficiencies in there? You can have computer bugs that fry the thing, and then you get these right. miles and miles of wire to diagnose. <laughs> right. Exactly. Are you going to buy that, or are you going to buy, or lease rather, 
a bank of IBM tabulating machines, electromechanical tabulating machines. I'm going to go with the tried and true method of IBM, who has reliably stood by me through the Great Depression, through World War I, and up to this wonderful World War II where all my calculations are needed. Right. So the very first computers were very useful to scientists. They were very useful to mathematicians. They were very useful to the government for figuring out things like complex German codes, artillery tables, and how to properly detonate a nuclear bomb. They weren't so useful for the business community. And IBM was really not a company that was tied in in a big, tangible way to the scientific community. They were creating tabulating machines for businesses and for, the, and for bureaucracies like the governments. It's right there in their name, International Business Machines. Right. So it would not have made any sense for IBM to get heavily, heavily involved in computing at the very, very beginning. That was not its customer base. Its customers were not going to buy those things. Maybe a couple of the biggest companies would buy one or two computers, but even then they would still buy tabulating equipment for most of their work. They weren't going to lose any accounts to a computer company. But it's certainly something they, I imagine they kept an eye on and going, I can see eventually this could be a problem and I might need to jump ship, but not now. They absolutely did. And they actually did get into computers pretty early. And they got into them primarily as an act of revenge. So there was a guy at Harvard University named Howard Aiken. And Aiken, in the late 1930s, was very interested in creating an electromechanical computer because he was getting absolutely sick to death of doing complex equations. And so he wanted to simplify that project, and he wanted an electromechanical computer to do it because at this point, pure electronics are not really that practical for this yet. It's really during World War II that electronics really come into their own. At the same time, Watson has become interested in cozying up to academia a little bit. He sees value in that process. Uh, He actually worked with a professor at Columbia to work on some of the first automated test scoring machines, which are really very similar to the tabulating kind of stuff that IBM machines are doing already. And so he had a good relationship with Columbia University, and he wanted to have a good relationship with Harvard University because it's Harvard. So Aiken was wanting to do this uh, advanced calculating machine, this computer, at the same time that IBM was starting to approach Harvard to have a beneficial relationship. And so they end up coming together, and they end up working on a computer together, the Automatic Sequence Controlled Calculator, which is often also called the Harvard Mark I. This was one of the very first working computers, but it was electromechanical. It wasn't electronic. So they work on that together. Aiken kind of defines what he wants. The engineers at Endicott, where IBM's corporate research facility is in New York, kind of build the thing. And then Aiken decides to become a glory hound. He decides to talk to the press and take complete credit for developing this computer, with IBM kind of just kind of helping out just a little bit on the side. Really, almost all of the work to make this a really fully functional, really operational computer was done by IBM engineers. Aiken was 
not very involved in the building of it. But he decided to take complete credit for basically everything, design, building, implementation, the works. And he did this on the eve of kind of the opening ceremony dedicating the computer in Harvard. Uh, It actually stayed at IBM's facilities for over a year after it was completed because they were testing it, working out the kinks. And then it was moved from IBM's facilities to Harvard. So the day of the dedication, Thomas Watson Sr. takes a train from New York up to the Boston area, up to Cambridge, and gets off the train. There's no Harvard representative there to greet him. How rude. Then he gets a local paper and sees this newspaper article where Aiken takes credit for the whole thing. Oh, boy, was Thomas Watson mad. Like, really, really a lot mad. Expletive may have been said. Yeah, like Hulk smash mad. He almost didn't attend the ceremony, but the Harvard people were able to beg and plead and apologize enough to get him to stick it out and attend the dedication. But he immediately went home and told his people, start working on something that will make Aiken's computer completely look like a child's toy. We're going to beat this thing into the ground, and this time people are going to know that it is an IBM machine. Well, this is 1939 when this is all happening, I believe. World War II kind of becomes a thing right after this. There's really no time to make a computer. IBM is too busy doing all sorts of other war-related work. But because of this mandate to figure out how to one-up Aiken, A small group of engineers at the company do start working more with vacuum tubes and start working on incorporating electronics into some of the traditional tabulating equipment. So IBM is starting to get into electronics a little bit here, very early, earlier than some people give Watson credit for. They're not going full-blown computer yet. They're starting with the business that they're already in, tabulators, because electronic stuff works faster than electromechanical stuff because electrons whiz around at a much faster speed than coil springs. It's just physics. So they start incorporating into the tabulating equipment, and they have a very successful tabulator called the 604, that's just the model number, that incorporates vacuum tubes and is much faster and is a big hit. They do also create a bigger computer in 1948 after the war, the uh, Selective Sequence Electronic Calculator. It's more of a calculator than a full-fledged computer. It's not quite got all of the features and capabilities of what we consider a computer today. But it was stored program, and it did calculations pretty fast for the time. It was fully electronic. So that was kind of a big breakthrough. And once they had that SSEC, Watson Sr. gave them a mandate to go ahead and work on cost-reducing and improving that device in order to create a consumer product that some of its bigger clients might want. So already in the late 1940s, they're looking at computing. They're looking at computers. It's just taking them some time to get going on it. Now, Watson was never really that, Watson Sr. was never really that comfortable with computers. So the main impetus for their push into computers in the late 1940s actually did come from his son, Thomas Watson Jr., Watson Jr.'s story is actually very interesting. Someone looking back and seeing, okay, Watson Sr., then Watson Jr., of course he made his son the the president of the company. That's not really the way it was at all. In fact, Thomas Watson Jr. very nearly didn't have anything to do with IBM. He didn't want to have anything to do with IBM. He was a kind of anxious guy. 
He suffered from both anxiety and depression as a child. His father was not a warm person. His father was consumed by his business, and his father was very demanding. When you put Watson Jr.'s depression and anxiety alongside Watson Sr.'s highly demanding nature, you had a recipe for disaster, and Tom Jr. did not have a happy childhood. He did not perform well in school. He did get into Brown University, which is Ivy League, but basically only because his father used his influence to get him in. Watson Jr. was not a stupid man. He was just a terrible student because of all the stuff going on in his life. He kind of scraped by at Brown, entered the business as a salesman, but had a terrible time of it. It was the worst combination of circumstances. Since he was the son of the founder, everyone assumed he was being groomed for a top position. Everyone was jealous and resentful of the fact that he was daddy's boy. And then certain executives did do things to show him favoritism, which was not something that he asked for. It's not something he sought. Like on his first day or something like that, or his first week, something like that, he made a big sale that made his quota for the entire year. I mean, it was such a big client that it fulfilled his sales quota for the entire year in one sale. That account was funneled to him by high-level executives because of who he was. It wasn't a client that he went out and cultivated. And he didn't like that. I mean, he knew what that would mean for him. He didn't like the fact that he was being singled out in this way. And so he actually finally left IBM. He liked flying. He was a pilot and a pretty good one. And so right before the uh, U.S. entered World War II, he joined the Air National Guard. And he left IBM. He got out. And he had no intention of coming back. But World War II changed him. For the first time, he was out from under his father's shadow. And it turned out that once he was free of all the uncertainty and anxiety and inferiority complexes that dogged him at his father's company, it turned out that he was charismatic. It turned out that he had a remarkable focus. It turned out that he was really good at breaking down complex problems into simple explanations and viable solutions. He was just really, really talented in all of those areas that actually make for a good executive. So he ends up working for a general, General Follett Bradley. He becomes his aide-de-camp in 1942 and stays with him till the end of the war. He becomes General Bradley's right-hand man, most trusted subordinate, the guy that Bradley knew he could rely on to get things done. If he needed something done, he knew Watson could get a team together, explain the problem, guide them to solution, make it happen. So near the end of the war, when it's clear it's, it's ending, Bradley asks Watson Jr., so what are you going to do after the war? Watson Jr. says, oh, I don't know. You know, I was thinking maybe I'd be a commercial airline pilot because he really does love to fly. I mean, that's a passion of his. And Bradley's just like, really? I kind of assumed you'd be going back and running IBM. And then it kind of crystallized in Watson's head. It's like, well, you know, I guess I could run IBM. I mean, just from a capability perspective, you know. Not the I'm the son of the owner and can go, hey, dad, throw me the keys. Right. He's like, I guess I really can run IBM. And so in 1946, he comes back. And he starts being groomed for the top spot. I mean, he's not made the president right away, 
but he becomes the personal assistant to the executive vice president of the company, kind of Watson Sr.'s right-hand man uh, in high-level management, Charlie Kirk. Kirk showed him the ropes of the business. Kirk was probably actually next in line to take over the company. It looked like there would probably be some kind of power struggle between Kirk and Watson Jr. But then Kirk actually died suddenly, suffered a massive heart attack, I think it was. So uh, that averted the power struggle. Tom Jr. took over most of Kirk's responsibilities, though he didn't immediately become executive vice president of the company. And then in 1952, Tom Sr. relinquished the president's role and named Tom Jr. the president of the company. Now, Tom Sr. was still chairman and CEO, so he was still in charge, but he had also been president. He had only had executive vice presidents and whatnot before. He'd never had a president of the company that wasn't him. So now Tom Jr. is the president. It's clear that he's going to be taking over the company, and his time taking over the company is going to be coming soon. Tom Jr. was a big, big believer in electronics. Well, considering he just went through World War II, where electronics played a major, major role in the Allies winning that war, it really would have an impression on him. Absolutely. So he wanted to push the company more and more into electronics. And he also saw the ENIAC computer, which we've talked about before, the pioneering computer at the University of Pennsylvania. He saw it in the late 1940s, 1948, I think, while he was still serving as Kirk's assistant. They went down and checked it out at a, at a public showing of it. He knew that IBM needed to ultimately get into computers. Watson Sr. was moving the company in that direction. He was incorporating vacuum tubes, electronics into the tabulating equipment. He had commissioned the uh, electronic calculator. He had ordered the creators of that product to try to turn it into a viable commercial product. He did all of those things, but he was still mostly stuck in the tabulating world. That's what he understood. And the tabulating customers were not yet quite ready to necessarily move from tabulating equipment to computers. So they kind of divvied up responsibilities. It was kind of understood that Watson Sr. would keep his eye on the tabulating business which he knew very well and which he had been in for years and years and years, while Tom Jr. would take the lead on pushing the company more and more into electronics and more and more into computers. Their really big break, their really big chance for that, came with the onset of the Korean War. In the aftermath of World War II, you know, defense spending kind of declined again because the war is over. But then with the Korean War, which was the, the first really hot conflict of the Cold War. Now defense spending is going up again. There's room for government contracts again. IBM was very involved with the government in World War II. IBM wants to be very involved again in Korea. But this time, rather than tabulating equipment or other stuff like that, Watson Jr. proposes that the company build a computer for the government as part of this new wave of defense spending. So they start a scientific computer that they initially call the Defense Calculator and then gains the name the IBM 701, which is kind of their first computer product. They don't sell many of them, but it's kind of the first thing that they do. Meanwhile, that selective sequence electronic calculator conversion project keeps going. It releases as the IBM 702, and it's a big machine that's more targeted at businesses. Both come out in 1953. Meanwhile, you still have more experiments going on in how do we increase the use of electronics and the sophistication of the tabulating equipment. 
That's going on at the same time as this. These machines can't be as expensive as a mainframe like the 701 or 702, or they'll never sell. They'll never get any business. Like I said, IBM leased equipment. They didn't sell equipment. So they carried that philosophy through to their computers as well. They did not sell computers. They leased them. So I don't have like the price of an IBM computer, like a total price, because they didn't do it that way back then. But the IBM 701, for example, leased for $15,000 a month. 1953 money. Yes, that's a lot of money. 15000 a month times 12 months, $180,000 a year to lease an IBM 701 computer. And for further comparison, what would that be in today's money? That would be about $1,726,806.74. A year in today's money. Yes. That's a lot of money. Right. So, like I said, most companies aren't going to do that to replace tabulating equipment. But they were continuing their experiments to make their tabulating equipment more sophisticated, and they were coming up with new electronic storage mediums for that. You know, the big computers use tube memory. We've talked about Williams tube memory before, uh, CRT memory. That's where a lot of your expense comes in. But on the low end, they were experimenting on using magnetic drum memory instead of tube memory, which is much, much cheaper by virtue of being much, much slower. Magnetic drum memory is basically, for all intents and purposes, works the exact same way as magnetic disk memory works today except that instead of a flat spinning disc that can spin really, 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 really fast, you've got a big metal drum that's magnetized. And so that metal drum rotates, and it rotates fairly slowly. But it's, it's the same basic idea. You have a magnetized medium, and then you have read-write heads that can scan that medium as that medium rotates, and that way you can access data. Basically the same as a disk, except way, 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 way slower. But also much, much cheaper than tube memory. So their first big breakthrough really comes when they perfect this much, much cheaper computer using this magnetic drum memory called the IBM 650, which was released in 1954. It had been in development for several years, but you see kind of all of these projects had been going, but they were kind of stalled. because. Marketing and sales didn't know what to do with them. They didn't know how to project markets for this thing. So IBM was a little slow in the sense that there was resistance on the business side to getting involved. But once Watson Jr. got into a position of relative power, and once they had success selling the idea of computers to the federal government during the Korean War, the idea of IBM computers specifically to the government during the Korean War, that kind of pushed all of these other projects to finally finish. So the 650 comes out in 54. It leases for only 3250 a month, which isn't chump change, but it's not that much more than the tabulating machines lease for, and it's way, way, way less than the computers lease for. It's like almost a fifth of the cost of leasing a computer per month. And so they sell 2,000 650s by 1962, which may not sound like a lot, but when you consider that there were probably under, there were definitely under 10,000 computers in the entire world, you know, at that time. That's pretty good. And they're all bringing you money per month. Yes. So how do we get from 
selling a small number of bigger computers and selling a slightly better number of smaller computers to being an absolutely, completely dominant firm in the industry. Because at this point, they're not dominant. At this point, Univac, Remington Rand, is definitely the bigger, more successful company in terms of computer sales only. I think IBM is still a much bigger company overall because the tabulating equipment business is still huge. They're in other office equipment. They're in electric typewriters, for instance, and they're doing very well in that. So they're a bigger company overall, not bigger specifically in computers. Got to tabulate some data. Two very important things happened. First of all was Project Whirlwind, which we've talked about before, so we won't repeat it here. But basically, Whirlwind was the first true real-time computing system and formed the heart of a project to create a command and control early warning system that blanketed the entire United States and protected the country from the threat of a Soviet nuclear attack. Back when a Soviet nuclear attack just meant bombers flying across the Arctic Sea, not intercontinental ballistic missiles. We talked about this before, but when it came time to commercialize that and actually build out from the one prototype and build lots of computers to be at all the command and control centers, Project Lincoln, Lincoln Labs, the whirlwind people, looked at three companies, Raytheon, major defense contractor, Remington Rand, number one in computers, IBM, number two in computers, but coming up fast. IBM won the contract, not because they were the biggest, most successful company at the time, but they did the best job of integrating sales, manufacturing, R&D. They did the best job at creating peripherals, even though they didn't sell as many computers as Univac. They created better peripheral devices like tape drives. They were used to installing large systems in the field quickly and efficiently because they'd been doing big tabulating setups for corporations for decades. So when looking at the total package, the whirlwind people, Lincoln Labs, decided that IBM had the best complete package. And so in the mid-1950s, they went with IBM to deploy Sage. That was a huge individual contract, which brought in a lot of revenue. And it was also a huge tie into the government, which made the government more eager to purchase others of their products. And it was a huge technological advantage because since they had to deploy these systems, they became the best company at working with core memory, the new memory technology. They became the best with a lot of new computer technologies, which in turn made their products more desirable to other companies looking to put in computers. And so they just took over the high-end computer market at that point. Not the high, high high-end, not supercomputers. They were never the strongest in supercomputers, but the big mainframes being used by universities, large corporations, and government agencies, IBM just completely dominated at that point and began crushing Univac in sales. At the same time, they were very smart. They launched an initiative to get IBM computers into universities. They would offer the computers free of charge to university computer labs that wanted to install them because they knew that they would train a whole new generation of mathematicians and scientists and engineers to use IBM machines. Because if the IBM machine is the computer that they use at their university, then the IBM machine is what they're going to be comfortable using in the business world, and they're just going to create more and more IBM customers. So they made deals with big universities like MIT to provide free computers. 
that IBM still staffed with their own people at those computer centers to create a new generation of users. So that gives them this high-end market. The other big thing that happens is they take over the low-end market. And basically what happens is once the transistor comes in, which is smaller, faster, cheaper, cooler, in the sense of generating less heat, than the vacuum tube, that really brings down the price of computing in a very dramatic way, and it brings down the size of computers in a very dramatic way. And it makes it more feasible for companies to now replace their tabulating equipment because they can get a computer that isn't that much more expensive and is way, way, way faster. This actually happened when it did because of Europe. By this time, IBM had a very, very successful electromechanical accounting machine called the IBM 407. It's just the number they gave it. It really doesn't have any significance other than how they numbered their products. This machine was reliable. It was fast, considering it was electromechanical. It did its job well. It was the backbone of the electromechanical tabulating market that IBM was still very dominant in. The problem was they really couldn't make them for the European market, partially because the European markets were protectionist and it was harder to import them, and also because uh, setting up the local factories to manufacture it would come with significantly higher tooling costs, which meant that they couldn't be as competitive on price. So even though they were in Europe and they did okay in Europe, they couldn't quite dominate the European market in the same way that they dominated the American market. So in 1952, a French competitor introduces a calculating machine, a tabulating machine called the Bull Gamma 3 that used mercury delay line memory to make it much, 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 much faster than the IBM machine. So IBM's French and German, West German, subsidiaries started clamoring for the home office, okay, guys, we need something that can keep up with this new machine from French Bull Company because they're cleaning our clocks. And because of these difficulties with imports and tooling, they just couldn't create an electromechanical accounting machine that could be sold for cheap enough and run fast enough. But we have this electronic computer thingy over here. That's right. They finally decide, okay, what we're going to do is we are going to build a computer to handle this problem, a fully transistorized, cheap, relatively speaking, computer. So that's what they do. It's released in October 1959 as the IBM 1401 data processing system. IBM often shied away from using the term computer for some reason in its equipment. I think not to scare its business customers or something. The 1401 was available for a rental of only 2500 a month, even cheaper than that 650 computer released a few years back. It's lightning fast because it uses transistors, lightning fast for the time. It was only slightly more expensive than a 407. Only slightly, barely more expensive for much greater capability. And so this is finally the machine that displaces the tabulating machines. Now, one thing that was particularly striking about the 1401 computer is that IBM chose to deck out the whole machine. And, and remember, this isn't a room-sized machine anymore, but the machine is still multiple separate components all joined together. Several tape drives the size of a small refrigerator, 
a desk that has uh, teletype on it. Another huge device that's the printer. You know, the central processing unit, which is the size of, like, a wardrobe. So, I mean, it's still a big machine. Aesthetically, every aspect of this machine was covered in a nice powder blue casing. The IBM logo was already blue at this point as well, but you had this nice powder blue casing on all of these components. After its release in 1960, the 1401 installs because they don't sell, they lease. It's released in 1960. By 1961, the end of 1961, they have already installed 2,000 of them. Before the end of its life, they would install 12,000 of them, which was a huge number for a computer in those days. And because of that blue casing that those computers had, this is when it became common to start referring to this company that is dominating the entire computer industry at this point as Big Blue. We shall crown the king. You know, Tom Watson Sr. retired in 1956, died shortly after. Tom Watson Jr. is completely in charge of the company now. He has led this push into computers because of Whirlwind. They have gotten great experience with computers and computer technology and were able to leapfrog Univac because of the situation with the tabulating machines in Europe. They were finally forced to embrace transistors to create a relatively low-cost computer to replace accounting equipment, tabulating equipment. By 1960, IBM is now fully in the computer business, winding down the tabulating business. They're more akin to the computer company that one would think of them as in the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s. In our next episode, we will take Big Blue that is now ready to take off like a rocket, show how they completely came to dominate the computer industry, and then show how they kind of dealt with this strange new emerging microcomputer industry at the end of the 1970s. Sounds like a plan. And we'll see you next time with it on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be pre-ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under Creative Commons Attribution License. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 